Hey, Mountain. I'm Kirk. Yeah, hey. Hey, I'm one of the worship pastors around here, and most Sundays you'll find me over at the Bel Air campus. And so I want to give a special shout-out to Bel Air. Fist bump to you guys. That's my crew over there. Yeah. Hey, and welcome to everybody and everybody at every campus and watching online. So last week I was on vacation with my family, and that usually means for us that we do the great American road trip thing, and we head out to the Midwest we pile into the minivan, and we go visit some family. So that's what we did this summer. One of our favorite things to do when we're on these long road trips is to put on a 90s music playlist on Spotify and sing along, right? Any 90s music people out there? Yeah? So, uh, so we'll do that. You know, my wife and I were teenagers in the 90s, so those are the songs that we grew up with, the songs that are in our hearts, you know, because we just sang them over and over again. And my kids are getting to the age now where they're kind of developing their own taste in music. And so there's some complaints that come from the back seat every once in a while. And I really feel like it's one of my goals and one of my jobs in life to help my kids cultivate and develop an appreciation for good music, right? So, and by that I mean the music that I want to listen to when we're in the car for 13 hours. So... <laughs> So uh, when we're listening to those songs for hours on end, you know, we start to sing along at the top of our lungs like everybody should when you're in the car. And we start to tell stories and like spout out facts about the things that happened when a song came out, like who the artist is. And then we'll tell stories about what happened in our lives when those songs came out because songs are connected to our memories, right? And so uh, we'll say things like, man, I remember the day that I got my driver's license. That song was on the radio. Or... My wife might say, oh, my friends and I, we had a dance routine to this song when we were younger. So the words from those songs, man, they are embedded in our hearts because we've sang them so many times over and over again for years and years at this point. And for the last few weeks here at Mountain, we've been studying through the Apostles' Creed. Now, I grew up in this movement of churches, and there's a saying that we use sometimes that says, no creed but Christ. And because of that, I didn't grow up with a familiarity with the Apostles' Creed. But over time and lately, it's become a statement that I've grown to love and appreciate. It's helped me learn to articulate my faith in God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit in a very powerful way. Now, you won't find this creed in the Bible. That might be surprising for some of us, right? Because it really sounds like something that would be in the Bible, and there's good reason for that, because the creed tells us the whole story, the overarching story of what God has done. It's a great story. And this creed condenses it down into four concise sentences. So in this series, we're not really preaching the creed, but we're letting the creed preach the Bible to us. And we're reciting this creed together each week in this series. And for some of us, these words are new and inspiring. That's the case for me. These are still new and inspiring words. And for some of us, these are familiar and nostalgic. But we're not reciting these words because we think that they're magical words or, or anything. But we, we just want to recite them because we believe in the message of this statement. We believe in what it represents. So I'm going to take off the preacher hat for a second right now, and I'm going to put on a hat that's a little more comfortable for me. This is the worship leader hat, and we're going to stand up together today, and we're going to recite the creed. And while we do this, uh, we want to just acknowledge the fact that we are worshiping God together. You know, we don't just worship God when we're singing songs. So we're going to say these words together like they're the most important words that we've ever said. 
We're going to say them like they're the most meaningful words that have ever come out of our mouths. We're going to say this creed like we're singing along to our favorite song five hours into a really long road trip, okay? Yeah, we got this in us? Yeah, okay, let's say this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So you can go ahead and be seated. Yeah, you can applaud for that. We worship you, God, as we say those words. Well, in our time together today, we're going to take a look at the lines of this creed that say about Jesus, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and descended to the dead. Now, we don't like to talk about death in our culture. It's a, it's a tough subject to talk about because it's shrouded in so much pain, the pain of sickness the pain of tragedy, the pain of grief and longing. Maybe it's the pain that's caused by words that were left unsaid, unfinished business. Maybe it's the uncertainty of what happens next. On our vacation, our trip last week, we went to my brother-in-law's new house. This is my wife's brother. And he called us while we were on the way there and he said, hey, I wanna give you a warning the garage might, might smell bad. Like, the garage might really stink when you get here. So he, uh, he really likes to fish. He's a fisherman, and uh, he lives up in northern Wisconsin, and they like to do a lot of ice fishing up there. You know, that's when you go out and you sit in the cold for hours on end on a frozen lake. And now, I like fishing. I really do. I do, but uh, man, it takes like a really burly northern man like Ben Kacharis to endure that kind of cold, you know? Like, so my brother-in-law, when he was ice fishing last winter, he caught this walleye, and it was like the biggest walleye that he had ever caught. It was huge. And he thought, man, this is the right kind of fish to get mounted and to put up on the wall. And because, you know, it was like the biggest fish that he's ever seen. Nobody's getting the fishing joke, you know? Fish is getting bigger, right? Okay. Yeah, so it's the biggest fish that he'd ever caught. And so he put it in the freezer, and then he promptly forgot about it. So a couple weeks later, his family moved, and the freezer got moved from the old house, and it was put in the garage at the new house, but it was never plugged in. Uh, so you know where the story's going now, right? Yeah. <laughs> so in northern Wisconsin, where they live in the winter, that's no big deal if you don't plug the freezer in in the garage because everything's kind of in this state of permafrost all winter. But then spring came, and now summer, and the freezer never got plugged in. 
And, and nobody wanted to deal with it because it meant that somebody was going to have to go out into the garage and open the freezer. You know, it smelled, it smelled like rotten fish. It smelled like death. And we'll do just about anything to avoid being confronted with death, even if it means like not using our garage anymore. So today we need to talk about death. We need to do the work, go into the garage and stare this ugly, rotten thing down. You know, at some point, you're going to sit at the funeral of a loved one. And this is hard to admit, but there's a grave with your name on it. There's a grave with my name on it. So we need to stare death in the face, confront this thing. And we need to look at the death of Jesus Christ, too. You know, we can't get to the resurrection of Jesus until we look at and confront the death of Jesus on the cross. So here's the scene. This is how it happened. Jesus was praying in a garden with his friends when some soldiers came to arrest him. And these soldiers were brought by one of his friends who sold him out. His name was Judas. Jesus was arrested and subjected to a clandestine trial in front of some religious leaders. They repeatedly questioned him, but he wouldn't answer their questions the way that they wanted, and they accused him of blasphemy. They didn't believe that he was who he said he was, the Son of God. And they were convinced that that was a crime worthy of death, but those leaders didn't have the authority to have Jesus killed, so they sent Jesus to a man named Pontius Pilate, the governor of the region. And Pilate was deeply troubled by how to deal with Jesus. He actually couldn't find anything wrong with him. He couldn't find a reason to punish Jesus. So Pilate basically tries to punt, and he sends Jesus to this cultural leader named Herod. And Herod doesn't want anything to do with him either, so he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate's wife warns him, don't have anything to do with Jesus. I've had some crazy dreams about that guy. So Pilate talks to Jesus. And he says, man, if you will just go with me, I could have you set free. He can hear the crowds outside screaming, crucify, crucify. And then Jesus, he doesn't even seem interested in defending himself. So Pilate takes Jesus and he puts a crown of thorns on his head. He takes a purple robe and drapes it over his shoulders, dressing him up in play clothes like he's a king. And he parades him out in front of the crowds and he said, here is your king. And by doing that, he mocked both Jesus and the crowds. So what's Pilate going to do with Jesus now? He can hear the crowd screaming, crucify, crucify. So Pilate gives in. He gives in to the pressure of leadership. He gives in to the chanting masses, and he sends Jesus away to be crucified. And we're going to pick up the story right there in Scripture. This is John 19. It says this. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, and there they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, 
king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write that he's the king of the Jews, but that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. So today, if that was us, we would say something like, it is what it is. You know, that's what you say when you either don't want to deal with something or you can't deal with something. It is what it is. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened so that scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now that's a hard story for us to listen to, isn't it? Can you feel the weight of it? I mean, Jesus was beaten, betrayed, and mocked. Maybe you feel that way too sometimes. You know, we're not gonna get into the details of crucifixion today. Just a few months ago, Luke shared with us a sermon where he talked about what happened to a body when it was hanging on a cross and the way that Jesus died. So maybe you wanna get online and check that out. You might be asking yourself right now though, why do we need to stand in this stinking garage and stare this thing in the face? You might even be asking yourself right now, why does this even matter? Why is the death of some guy 2,000 years ago such a big deal? You know, Pilate had to decide what he was going to do with Jesus. And when we hear that story, we've got to make a decision too. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to do the work and open the freezer? Are you just going to avoid the garage altogether because it makes you uncomfortable? So we're gonna look at some ways that the death of Jesus is significant today. And we're gonna ask that question, why? Why did Jesus have to die? And why does this even matter? Well, it matters because Jesus' death was a prophesied death. And that means that for thousands of years, God had been speaking to and through people about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, and how he would suffer and die. You know, last week, Nathan introduced us to this idea that Jesus, all throughout his life, was fulfilling prophecies, that he really was the Messiah, the Christ. First, First Corinthians 15, 3 says, For what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That was written by Paul. Paul was one of the early followers of Jesus, an early Christian. And before he became a Christian, he was a passionate Jewish leader. 
And he knew the Old Testament scriptures. He probably knew them better than just about anyone. So when he says that this is important to know that Jesus died according to scripture, he really knew what he was talking about. And we would do well to pay attention. Do you ever just want to hear from God? I do. Isaiah was a prophet about 700 years before the time of Jesus. And he spoke for God in a time when God's people, the Israelites, were in exile in Babylon. They were longing for a savior, longing for their home. And Isaiah had this message from God. This is Isaiah 53. It says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And then later it says, For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And at the time, I'm sure that seemed to be a message for a people living in a land that wasn't their own under oppressive rule, but this side of the cross, we look at that and we see Jesus, the Son of Man, who's the suffering servant. And I've heard this chapter sometimes referred to as the Gospel of Isaiah, and I love that because it's the good news that Jesus came to save us. Pilate wouldn't have known that passage. He wasn't Jewish. But it's almost like he followed that as a manuscript for the way that he had Jesus suffer and die. And there's prophecies all throughout the Old Testament that Jesus' death fulfills. Zechariah 11 says that he will be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Judas. Isaiah 50 says that he'll be struck and spit upon, and that happened in that secret trial. Psalm 69 says he'll be given vinegar to drink when he's thirsty. Psalm 34 says that his bones will not be broken. In Amos, it says that the sky would turn dark in the middle of the day. Really, the whole story of the Old Testament has these big flashing signs, and it says, this way to the Messiah, this way to Jesus, and those signs are still there today for us to see. And you know what? Sometimes it feels like I've gotten really good at ignoring those signs. When Jesus was breathing his last breath on the cross, he said the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that sounds like the cry of utter pain, and I'm sure that it was. But in that moment, Jesus was pointing to a passage of scripture, Psalm 22. Now, the book of Psalms, that was sort of like a 90s Spotify playlist for the for the Jewish people. I mean, these were the songs that they sang over and over again. They were the songs they grew up with, and they loved these songs, and they knew every word by heart. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fill in the blank. They knew exactly what was coming next, where it says this, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. My mouth dried up and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and glow over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. 
That was written a thousand years before Jesus was even born by one of his ancestors, King David. And isn't it amazing the way it describes crucifixion? I mean, that form of torturous death isn't even invented for several, several hundred years. Jesus' death matters because it's part of this story that God's been telling since the beginning. And it's got these big signs that point to Jesus. You know, when Jesus talked about his death, he always made it sound like something that he willingly did. And he did. Jesus' death was a voluntary death. John 10 says this, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one can take it from me. When Jesus referred to himself, the title he used most of the time was Son of Man. And that sounds like a title to us today right? But another way to translate that phrase is to say, I am human. So Jesus was telling people, I'm Jesus. I am human. Imagine if I came up to you and introduced myself and I said, hi, I'm Kirk. I'm human. That sounds a little weird, right? Yeah. So why don't you try this real quick to the person next to you. Say, hi, my name. I'm human. Let's see how this feels. Let's do it. Yeah. (laughs) You guys do sound a little funny doing that. So, hey, let me tell you a little story about my kids right now. So, I've got three kids, my, uh, and they're my two oldest, my sons, they're in the tooth-losing stage of life right now. And, you know, I always thought that it would be like some sort of dad rite of passage to be pulling out my kids' teeth, right? But I haven't got to pull out a single tooth yet. So, my oldest son, Asher, he's, he, uh, he's pulled all his own teeth out doesn't even tell us when he's going to do it. He won't even tell us if it's loose. I mean, he'll just come in one day with a tooth in his hand. He's like, hey, look what I got. He's just a really independent dude. And, uh, and then my younger son, Eamon, he will do anything to avoid the pain of losing a tooth. I mean, he won't wiggle it. He won't touch it. He'll do that weird thing where he tries to eat on the side of his mouth so it doesn't touch the one tooth that's loose. You know what I'm saying? So he'll do anything to avoid that pain. When he lost his first tooth, we were eating pasta. Now, now, can you imagine how loose a tooth has to be when all it takes is a wet noodle to knock it out? I mean, I mean, he'll do anything to avoid the pain of losing a tooth. Now, I'm sure that Jesus wanted to avoid the pain of the cross. That human part of him that wanted to avoid the pain of the cross. And I'm sure he was tempted to run. I'm sure he was tempted to put on a display of his power, but he didn't. He didn't. He was so one with the Father, so committed to God. He was so committed to God's rescue mission on earth that he willingly carried a cross up a hill to his death. When Jesus was walking the earth, people didn't wear cross necklaces or get cross tattoos. And for us today, that's a powerful image of love. And we see Jesus. It's a beautiful image for us. But in those days, it was something entirely different. The cross is what the Romans used to control people. The Romans didn't just crucify someone to punish the individual. They crucified someone to send a message, to prove a point. 
Not long before Jesus lived, there was a king named Alexander Janius, and he had about 800 of his political and religious enemies rounded up and crucified. And while they were suffering on their crosses, he executed their families in front of them. And around the same time, there was a slave rebellion in Rome led by a former slave named Spartacus. And when Rome squashed that rebellion, they lined the Apian Way, the King's Highway, with 6,000 crosses for the members of the rebellion. Rome was sending a message. And knowing all this, Jesus willingly went with the soldiers when they came to arrest him. They didn't need to restrain him. He willingly endured the mockery of the crowds, willingly stood before Pilate, a man who could have set him free. He willingly was beaten nearly to death, willingly carried a cross through the crowds as they, as, they, as they mocked him. He willingly was nailed to the cross and died, willingly submitted to the Father and his plan. You know what? Jesus once invited all his followers to take up their cross and follow him. That's us. That's us. Life's not always going to be easy. Following Jesus isn't always easy. Jesus said it's not going to be easy. And you may be well aware of that today. But no one's going to make you take up your cross. Actually, nobody can make you take up your cross. You've got to decide to willingly go with Jesus. What are you going to do with Jesus? Jesus died a distinctive death. And by that, I mean when Jesus died, things happened that have never happened before and will never happen again. So... (laughs) Have you heard about these weird similarities between the lives of Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy? This is fun stuff, okay? So check this out. So Abraham Lincoln was elected to Congress in 1846, Kennedy in 1946. Lincoln was elected president in 1860, Kennedy in 1960. The names Lincoln and Kennedy both contain seven letters. Both wives lost their children while living in the White House. Both presidents were shot in the head on a Friday. Lincoln's secretary, Kennedy, warned him not to go to the theater. Kennedy's secretary, Lincoln, warned him not to go to Dallas. Both were succeeded by men named Johnson. Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln, was born in 1808. Lyndon Johnson was born in 1908. John Wilkes Booth was born in 1839. Lee Harvey Oswald was born in 1939. Both assassins were known by their three names comprising of 15 letters. Booth ran from a theater and was caught in a warehouse. Oswald ran from a warehouse and was caught in a theater. Now that's crazy, right? Isn't that crazy? I love that stuff, man. If you know me, you know, like, like I'm a sucker for a good conspiracy theory, right? So, man, I could go down that rabbit hole for hours. But when it comes down to it, those are just coincidences, right? But when Jesus was on the cross... Things happen. Supernatural things happen. God was on the move, and it wasn't a coincidence. Like the sky went dark in the middle of the day. Luke 23 says this, that it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. That was the time that Jesus was suffering on the cross. From about noon 
until about 3 in the afternoon. And over the years, there's been lots of attempts to try to explain this phenomenon. I mean, was it an eclipse? Well, it doesn't seem to make sense because the Jewish calendar was lunar. So this was Passover time. And Passover always happened at a full moon. So it couldn't really have been an eclipse. You guys remember that eclipse we had last year? Wasn't that a fun day? I mean, like, so my family and a bunch of other families in our neighborhood, we all got together out in the yards and, and we did the cereal box thing. Did anybody get the cereal box thing to work? Yeah, it kind of works for us. But we had a couple pairs of those 3D glasses, the, solo, you know, the eclipse glasses that we passed around and we all got a chance to see it. And it got dark-ish, right? And it lasted for about a minute, but it was a fun day, man. Wasn't, wasn't that just fun? I thought it was fun. <laughs> so there's a song that we love to sing around here, and it says, in it, the darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. And I'm sure that in that moment, for some, it seemed like darkness had won as it enveloped the skies. And maybe that darkness represented a change in the natural order, or maybe it was God's sorrow, or maybe it was God withdrawing his presence. I don't know, but I do know this, that it's another one of those big signs pointing to Jesus saying, this is important. This changes everything. He is the Messiah. Matthew 27 says this, it says a few really impossible things happened right at the moment that Jesus breathed his last breath. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rock split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of their tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And have you ever felt like God is just out there and there's this thing that keeps you from God. Like you just can't quite get to God. And so the Jewish people had this physical thing that separated them from God. It was a curtain. It separated God from man. It separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. And on one day a year, on the day of atonement, the priest would go in and he would pray for the forgiveness of the sins of all of God's people. And when Jesus died, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. That, that curtain was fabric an inch thick. And they say when the temple was being built that it took 300 priests to move the curtain as they were installing it. But when Christ died, that thing that separated us from God was removed. And through the blood of Christ, that thing that you feel is keeping you from God, that keeps God just out of reach, it's removed. It's taken away. And at the same time, there was this earthquake and dead bodies came out of the grave. Can you imagine this? I mean, something is as big as that and it gets a passing glance in scripture, one line in the Bible. And you know, we don't really know what this was like and we don't know uh, what happened to those people if it was just a one-time appearance. I mean, was it like, hey, get the door, I think it's grandma. Can't be grandma, she's been dead for years. We don't know. But we do know this, that somehow this was God's way of validating and confirming the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that his son has conquered the grave. And so now we come back to this big question of why. Why did Jesus have to die? And Jesus had to die because he died an atoning death. 
Atonement is the way that Jesus restores the relationship between creation and God. And for us, the thing that separates us from God today, it's not a curtain in a temple. It's this problem that we all share called sin. We all make mistakes. We all do things wrong. None of us are perfect. You know, before Jesus came, the way that God's people had to deal with the sin problem was this. They offered sacrifices. They killed animals. It was the shedding of blood. And there was a pretty strict schedule of sacrifices that needed to be made in order for there to be forgiveness. And remember, it was on the Day of Atonement that the priest went into the Holy of Holies to pray. Now, if we're not careful here, it's easy for us to start seeing God as this bloodthirsty, vengeance-filled, justice-seeking being. You know, in Hebrews 9.22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But when we look closely and we see clearly, it's abundantly evident that this really is just all about love for us. It's a love story. I love what Pastor Brian Zan says. Let's be clear, the cross is not about the appeasement of a monster God. The cross is about the revelation of a merciful God. At the cross, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. The cross is where God, in Christ, absorbs sin and recycles it into forgiveness. The cross is not what God inflicts upon Christ in order to forgive. The cross is what God endures in Christ as he forgives. One of my favorite verses is 1 John 3:16. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He died the death that I should have died because he loves me so much. 1 Peter 2:24 says, "He bore our sins in his body on a tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." And when Jesus uttered that phrase on the cross, it is finished. That was one word in his language, to telestai. And it was used in several ways, but one way that they used it in that culture was at the bottom of an invoice when it was paid in full. And so Jesus is hanging on the cross and he looks out at a world that despised him and hung him up on a tree to die and he says, your sins are paid in full. Your lies paid in full. The way that you cheated, paid in full. The way that you stole, paid in full. Your lust, the pornography, paid in full. Your anger, paid in full. Your bitterness, paid in full. Your addictions, paid in full. Jesus' death matters because at the cross, our sins died with Jesus. Now, there's two more phrases in this part of the creed that we haven't even touched yet today. He was buried and descended to the dead. Now, you may be familiar with a translation of this that says, he descended to hell. This is what I know. Jesus was buried in a tomb that was purchased by a man named Joseph. And Joseph took Jesus' body and cared for it wrapped it in linens, 
and laid it in a tomb. And he descended to the dead. That means he died. He really died. He did the thing that all dead people do. He went to the place that all dead people go. I mean, he was really dead. Like, he was super dead. It's probably the most human thing that Jesus has ever done. He really died. He really lived among us, and he really died among us. He was as dead as that walleye in my brother-in-law's freezer. Now... When I was a kid, I really loved the TV show Sesame Street. My parents tell me that I used to just hum the theme song when I wanted to watch it, even before I could talk. And on the show, there was an actor, and he played this character, Mr. Hooper, and he died suddenly. And so rather than avoiding the subject, Sesame Street decided to talk about death. Big Bird, the character, was, was really close to Mr. Hooper, and so he tells some of the grown-ups that he wants to give Mr. Hooper a drawing. And they, they explained to Big Bird, Big Bird, remember, Mr. Hooper, he, he died. And so Big Bird says, well, I'll just give it to him when he gets back. <laughs> and they say, well, he's not coming back. When, when people die, they don't come back. And, and Big Bird looks sad. And then, and then he asks that question, that all of us ask when we're confronted with death. It's the question that we've been asking ourselves today, why? And one of the adults, one of the grown-ups says, well, because. And I know that episode has helped a lot of people. It helps a lot of kids process and deal with grief. But you know what? We have a way better answer than well because. And when they say that dead people don't come back, well, one did. That wasn't the end of the story for Jesus. And because of that, it's not the end of the story for us either. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know, the next verse right after that, it gives us the answer to why. Why did Jesus have to die? It says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came and lived and died to save us, to save you, and to save me. Amen. So what are you going to do with Jesus? In that same Sesame Street episode, Big Bird realizes that he's got all these great memories of Mr. Hooper. And he says, well, we can remember him and remember him and remember him as much as we want to. And Jesus knew that it would be important for us to remember him as much as we want to. And it would be important for us to remember his death on the cross And so he got some of his friends together and he had this meal with him and he said, this is how I want you to remember me. And so just like they did at that meal, we take a cup and we remember that Jesus' real blood dripped down his face and it flowed from the wounds in his side. And we take some bread 
And we remember that Jesus' real body was beaten, crucified, and died. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried and descended to the dead. Let's pray. God, we remember that the death of Jesus was for us. And we realize that it's by his wounds that we are healed. And it's because of him that we have freedom and redemption because of Jesus. So God, help us to be filled with gratitude, gratefulness, and help us to be moved to righteousness and the life that comes through Christ. And we pray in the name of the Messiah, the one who saves, Jesus. Amen.